It is your word, Lord. It is a word that comes from Almighty God. It is a word that comes from the infinite God, the Creator God, the omnipotent God, the omnipresent God, the God who is undivided in His parts, the God who is a triune God, three individual persons making up that one Godhead, a God who is unified in all that He does, a God who is wise in everything He decrees, and a God who is sovereign in all He decrees. A God who is authoritative and ruler over all, and a God who is astoundingly gracious, understanding that His created beings are made out of dust, and He understands the weaknesses and frailties And not only understands those weaknesses, but provides for us. You are, above all, the singular God to be worshipped. And we have gathered to do that. We have gathered to do that because we have been equipped to do it through Jesus Christ our Savior. Apart from Him, we could not worship you. With Him, we will always worship worship you. And it's him who captivates us, not just this season because it is Christmas, but because of this passage and a reminder that he is the branch. He is the one who comes in humility and will grow into dominance over the entire world and be your provision for a universal ruler. Might we find joy in Him, confidence in Him, peace and rest in Him this morning, even while we live in a world of unrest. And so we commend our worship to you. Would you guide us in understanding in this passage, we pray in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen. In June of 1945, three-year-old Dennis Helms received a letter from his father, Richard. Richard was with the OSS stationed in Germany, and he was writing on VE Day. He wrote this on this letterhead. Dear Dennis, the man who might have written on this card once controlled Europe three short years ago. When you were born. Today he is dead. His memory despised. His country in ruins. He had a thirst for power. A low opinion of man as an individual. And a fear of intellectual honesty. He was a force for evil in the world. His passing. His defeat. Is a boon to mankind. But thousands died. That it might be so. The price for ridding society of bad is always high. Love, Daddy. The world has always had bad leaders, evil leaders, wicked leaders. 
I suppose that every election cycle in countries around the world, certainly in our country as well, there are some fears that we will receive evil and wicked leaders to guide us. And even if we escape a worst case scenario and the man that is our leader or the men and women who are our leaders are not the worst of all evil, we still long for a best case scenario, don't we? When will justice reign? When will judges always do just things? Is such a time even possible? It is. It is indeed. And that is the very message of Zechariah in the sixth chapter of his prophecy. We have seen in the opening chapters of Zechariah a series of eight visions that were given in chapters one to six. And in those chapters, it is revealed that God will provide justice for his people. His wrath and his anger in the world will be appeased and it will be put to rest. We saw that in chapter 6, verse 8 last week. Andrew just read it for us. He cried out to me and spoke to me saying, See, those who are going to the land of the north have appeased my wrath, have put to rest my spirit in the land of the north. My wrath, my anger is appeased. It will relent. God will provide justice by his justice being poured out righteously in every corner of the earth and every form of injustice being put down eternally. The Lord Almighty will provide a universally just kingdom And that is in complete contrast to everything that Israel and Judah had experienced all through her history and certainly in her most recent history as Zechariah writes under Babylon and now Medo-Persia. Those visions finished in chapter 6 verse 8 and in the first declaration following those visions it is revealed that God will also not only provide a just kingdom, but he will provide a just ruler for his kingdom. Not just a just ruler, but the just ruler, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Here's what we're going to find in this passage. God comforts his people with the promise of the crowning of Jesus Christ as eternal king. That merits an amen, by the way. Oh, friends. I know there's not a lot of comfort always in this world. There are hard things all around us. But our comfort is not in what we have today in this world. Our comfort is what we will have tomorrow with Christ. And this is a surety. It will come about. This is God's promise to Israel and to the world. In this passage, verses 9 to 15, we're going to see a picture, a representation of what God will do to bring about his king, and then the reality of who that king is and what he does. Let us first see the picture of God's kingly gift. The picture of God's kingly gift, that's verses 9 to 11 of Zechariah 6. I've noted this, that There's a shift in verse 9 from what we have seen in this book. Eight times so far, 
Zechariah has said something like, Then I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold. And that indicates he was seeing some kind of vision, some kind of physical representation made by God to him of something that would come. Now in verse 9, he reverts back to what he said in the very first book, or first verse of this book, and that is, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, the word of the Lord came to me. That's another form of a revelation from God, but it is verbal and not visual. So the eight visions that he had were visual revelations from God. This is a verbal revelation from God. That little phrase, the word of the Lord came to me, occurs about 110 times in the Old Testament. Nine times it occurs in this book. And as I indicated, it appears in the very first verse of this book. In the eighth month of the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah the prophet, the son of Berechiah, the son of Edo, saying, so the word of the Lord came to me. This is, this is a form of God's special revelation. So both visions and direct speech from God are what we call special revelation. It is God declaring and revealing something particular about his nature and his salvation plan for his people. Now we understand that God has revealed himself to us in In two primary ways. One way is that he's revealed himself in general revelation. And by general revelation, we mean that everyone everywhere gets that revelation. It is general. It is to all of mankind. And he has revealed himself by general revelation or in general revelation by means of creation. So the heavens declare the glory of God and through conscience So that whether a man has the Bible or not, his conscience tells him that's right, that's wrong. And everyone has that. Now, some suppress it, some kill it, some fight against it, some act as if they do not have it, some retrain it to go in wrong kinds of ways. But every man, every woman, every person has a conscience. And those are those are God's two means of general revelation. Here, though, we have God's special revelation, his particular revelation, so that God speaks to man and tells man, this is my plan of salvation, and this is my plan for you. This is my plan for my people. So there are multiple different kinds of special revelation, miracles and direct speech and visions But the primary means of special revelation that we look to are the Word of God and the Word God, Jesus Christ. And so this is another one of these special kinds of revelation. It comes from God to Zechariah. And what I want you to hear, what I want you to see, is that this is God speaking. And because it's God speaking and God telling, this is what's coming. This is my plan. It comes with the authority of God alone. It's not optional whether or not it's going to be followed. It demands obedience It demands trust. So what did God reveal to Zechariah in this passage? The revelation is given to us in verses 10 and 11. Notice verse 10. 
The revelation is, the declaration is, take an offering from the exiles. And then he names three exiles, Heldai, Tobijah, and Jediah. And he notes that they are from Babylon. And it seems like, we don't know this with certainty, but it seems like they probably just arrived. Now, if you're thinking correctly, and you're remembering the timing and sequence, the first people came back from Babylon in 538 B.C. This is now about 518, about 20 years have passed. And these guys have just come. And we don't know why, but we do know that there were, I'm going to say, stragglers that were coming all along after the main group of people came back. And these evidently came back for a particular reason, perhaps for the reason that is given in this revelation to build, to, to create this crown. They came with offerings, with gifts of gold and silver. What's interesting about this, and you may notice this, it says, take My translation says, take an offering from the exiles. That word, an offering, or those words, an offering, are in italics. And that means they actually aren't in the Hebrew text. That's translators' attempt to try and help us understand exactly what's going on. Literally what it says is, um, take from the exiles. And we're left wondering, take what from the exiles? And so it's led to all kinds of translations. The ESV translates it very Literally, like that, take from the exiles. The New King James Version says, receive the gift. The NIV, take the silver and gold. Another translation, choose some people. And the idea is, take from among the exiles and use them. And so we're left wondering, what is it that they're taking? Well, there's a lot of ink been spilt about that. And I've just talked about it for two minutes now. I think it's really quite simple. He says in verse 10, take an offering. Then verse 11, take silver and gold. He means us to understand that we're supposed to take, they were supposed to take, or Zechariah was supposed to take this silver and gold that the three men came with from Babylon and then do something with them, with that. We don't know anything about those guys that showed up, but we know their names. Their names are relatively common and the derivations of it. Uh, the derivations are also given at the end of this section. Verse 14, we find Helam, Tobijah, Jediah, and Hen. Those are all variations, different spellings, nicknames of those particular names. And so the ver- word the in verse 14 are almost certainly the same ones as in verse 10. We don't know anything about them other than they just showed up from Babylon and they're wealthy because they come with a wealthy gift. What is important is that they came with this gift and what is supposed to be done with that gift. That's verse 11. Take the silver and gold and make an ornate crown of that gold. This crown is a particular kind of crown. There are different kinds of crowns. This is a regal crown. This is a royal crown. This crown, this word for crown, is used in the plural. Um, So it's actually crowns. And the speculation has been perhaps that he's saying make a couple of crowns. I don't think that's likely. I think it's one crown. It could be that he's talking about circlets within that crown. So a circlet of silver and a circlet of gold in that one crown. That's certainly a possibility. I think 
Perhaps what he means us to understand is certain times in the Hebrew language they would pluralize a word in order to make it majestic and powerful and mighty. And I think that's what he's wanting us to see here is that this crown is a majestic crown. It's a particular crown. It is an excellent crown. But what I want you to see particularly is that this is a crown for a king. This is a king's crown. And then notice, I stress that because notice what he says to do with it. And set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Now priests did wear head coverings. Headdresses. In some places they might be called crowns, but they were never this kind of crown. Exodus chapter 28 tells us that the high priest had a head covering, a, a headdress, we might call it a turban, that was made out of linen. And in the front there was a plate that was held on by, by blue cloth or blue fabric um, that said, Holy to the Lord. It was a reminder to the priest of his calling, his position. It was a reminder to the people of his position and his calling. That's not this crown. This is a regal crown. This is a kingly crown. And it's put on Joshua, the high priest. This is not the first time we've seen Joshua in this book. We saw him pictured in chapter 3 where he is cleansed of his unrighteousness. We know from Ezra, that he was among the first returnees from Babylon to go back to Judah. We know that he was instrumental in restoring worship for the Israelites when they returned to Judah. And we know that he was, along with Zerubbabel, instrumental in the rebuilding of the temple. That's Ezra chapter 3. Both in his official function and in his high priestly role, Joshua is tremendously influential in the restoration of Judah to the land. But he was not, and he could not, be king. This royal crown is put on Joshua's head, but he could not fulfill the prophecy because he was not from the Davidic line, he was from the Aaronic line. He was from the line of priests. And if he's from the line of priests from Aaron, he could not be also from the line of Judah and be the king. And so as he wears this crown, we recognize that whatever is going on here, it's a picture. It's not to find its fulfillment in him, It's looking to something else. He was wearing the crown, but the crown wasn't his. Zechariah understood that something beyond the royal coronation was happening. But what was it that was happening? We find in verses 12 to 15 the reality of God's kingly gift. One commentator has said about this passage... This is one of the most remarkable and precious messianic prophecies 
And there is no plainer prophetic utterance in the whole Old Testament as to the person of the promised Redeemer, the offices he was to fulfill, and the mission he was to accomplish. Notice what is said to Zechariah, verse 12, Then say to him, Thus says the Lord of hosts. Now this is a really fine distinction, but it's an important one. Notice that it is said to Zechariah, say to him. He doesn't say, say about him. But to make this declaration to him. In other words, this is not about Joshua as if Joshua is the ultimate fulfillment. Joshua is merely the illustration of a greater reality. And notice that the greater reality is promised by the Lord of hosts. So God Almighty, omnipotent God, the God who is over all things, all people, all armies. He is the one that makes this declaration. In other words, if anyone can accomplish this, it is God Almighty who will accomplish what I'm about to reveal to you. And what is about to reveal to him, be revealed to him, notice he says... Say to him, behold, a man whose name is Branch. Now we know that that term Branch is a messianic title. We've already seen it in this book, chapter 3, verse 8. Listen, Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who are sitting in front of you. Indeed, they are men who are a symbol. For behold, I am going to bring in my servant, the Branch. And so even in chapter 3, he is promising the coming of the Messiah. And in chapter 3, he makes a distinction between Joshua and the Messiah. They are not the same. And he carries that forward here in chapter 6. The one that Joshua is representing is not himself, but the branch. We find a similar demonstration of the use of this term as a messianic term in Isaiah Isaiah chapter 4, seven women, verse 1, will take hold of one man in that day, saying, We will eat our own bread and we will wear our own clothes. Only let us be called by your name. Take away our reproach. In that day, the branch of the Lord will be beautiful and glorious and the fruit of the earth, that which comes from the branch, will be the pride and the adornment of the survivors of Israel. We find a similar usage of the term in chapter 11, which is one reason we read that passage earlier. Then a shoot will spring forth from the stem of Jesse, from the Davidic line, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. This is a messianic term, a man whose name is Branch. Now, just side note, this is, this is, um, isn't that interesting part of the message? Notice as well that phrase, behold a man, or behold the man. Does that phrase mean anything to you? Behold the man. Where else do you find that? In John, in the Bible, yes. <laughs> in this passage, in fact. We find it in John coming from the lips of Pilate, affirming 
unwittingly so, that Jesus is the Messiah. Behold, look at the man. And what is it that this man, the branch, does? Notice what the Lord of hosts says. Behold, a name, his, an, a man whose name is branch, because he will branch out from where he is. So he will come as a branch, as a sprout, as something small, as something insignificant, seemingly, in an insignificant place. And from where he is, in that insignificant place, he will branch out. He will spread out. He will grow out of the humility of the Davidic line and out of the humility of the nation of Israel will come the universal ruler over Judah, Israel, and all the earth. From humble beginnings comes the power and authority of God. <laughs> listen to this. Listen to what Isaiah says. You're, you're familiar with this passage. But listen to Isaiah 53. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Verse 2. For he, the suffering servant, for he grew up before him like a tender shoot, a branch, and like a root out of a parched ground. No stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised. We did not esteem him. He's a root. He's a branch. He is a sprout. He is small. He is seemingly insignificantly insignificant. Now listen to the end of Isaiah 53. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great and he will divide the booty with the strong because he poured himself out to death. He was numbered with the transgressors, yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. The one who was small became king of the earth and salvation of all men and providing salvation for all men. This is this is the branch. This is the one who starts as a small thing and becomes a great thing, exemplifying the power and the authority of God. Behold, a man, a branch. But he doesn't stay a sprout and a small thing, but he branches out into the Messiah who will rule the earth. What is it that he will do as the Messiah Notice four things in these verses. He will build the temple of the Lord. Verse 12. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold a man whose name is Branch, for he will branch out from where he is, and he will build the temple of the Lord. Yes, verse 13. And then it is he, emphatic, who will build the temple of the Lord. In other words, he and no one else. Now think about that for just a moment. Turn back one page. Chapter 4, verse 7. What are you, O great mountain? All the problems that were surrounding Judah as they were trying to rebuild the temple. Before Zerubbabel, you will become a plain and he will bring forth a top stone with shouts of grace. 
grace to it. Zerubbabel will look at all of the problems that are around you and he will lift up the capstone, the top stone, the final stone, put it in its place and the temple will be finished. Verse 8, the hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of the house and his hands will finish it. And then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. So we know Zerubbabel will build the temple. And we know that two years after this prophecy, he did. And they dedicated the temple. But notice this. A man whose name is Branch will build the temple of the Lord. Yes, it's him who will build the temple of the Lord. He, he will really build the temple. The temple that we are meant to understand is distinct from the temple of Zerubbabel. What other temple is going to be built? Why, it's the millennial temple that he's talking about. Listen to what Isaiah says about that temple. Isaiah chapter 2, verses 2 to 4. Now it will come about in the last days that the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains and be raised above the hills and all the nations will stream to it and many peoples will come and say, Come! Let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. So they're coming to the mountain. They're coming to the presence of God. They're coming to the house of God at the mountain in Jerusalem. Why? So that he may teach us concerning his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For the law will go forth from Zion and the word from the the word of the Lord from Jerusalem and he will judge between the nations. He will render decisions for many peoples and they will hammer their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks and nation will not lift up sword against nation and never again will they learn war. It's God's millennial kingdom with his Messiah on his throne in his temple in Jerusalem and he will build it. He will build it. And not only will he build it, but listen to what John the Apostle says in Revelation 21. He's looking at heaven. He sees the new Jerusalem. He sees the foundation stones of the city. He identifies all of the stones. He identifies the 12 gates as 12 pearls, each gate a single monstrously large pearl. The city was of gold, pure gold, like transparent glass. Revelation 21, 22. And I saw no temple in it for the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. So the Lamb is going to build the temple And the Lamb is going to become the temple, the place of worship for all of eternity. What's God's kingly gift? God's kingly gift is that He will build the temple of the Lord. And secondly, He will bear honor and sit on His throne. Verse 13. He will build the temple of the Lord and He who will bear the honor and he who will bear the honor and sit and rule on his throne. He will have the majesty 
the glory, the honor that is fitting of this unique throne. The word honor is almost always used in the Old Testament, this particular word, to refer to God alone. You might look at Psalm 96, verse 6, or Psalm 104, verse 1. And that's all throughout the Old Testament. Not every single time, but almost always, this word is used of God alone. And what I want you to see here is that this branch bears the honor and the unique glory of God. Have you heard of that anywhere else? That the Messiah bears the glory of God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw His glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Exactly, it's John 1, verse 14. It is glory that fits Him to be seated on the throne as the co-regent with the Father. This one who is the branch, the Messiah, gets to position himself as king. And just to belabor the point one moment further, a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, the government will rest on his shoulders, he's king, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace, and there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. How does this come about? The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Almighty God does this. This branch, just, just an insignificant sprout, sits on the throne of God with the honor of God. Oh, it just gets better. And he will be a priest on his throne. Friends, when Zechariah heard that, and then when he declared it to the people of Judah, they had to be absolutely stunned by that statement. The two roles, priest and king, cannot be fulfilled in one person. Because you've got to be either from the Davidic line or the Aaronic line. If you want to be king, you've got to come from David. If you want to be a priest, you've got to come from Aaron. And you can't come from both. And so if the priest is going to sit on the throne as king, what kind of king is he? It's not Joshua. As significant and as important as he was. It is the branch. It is the branch Jesus Christ. Who comes from the tribe of Judah. Who comes as a descendant of David. Who comes as the king. Who will be declared later to be the king of all kings. And the Lord of all lords. Now the question is. 
Jesus comes from David. He doesn't come from Aaron. So how can he be priest? That's the question they had to be asking. They had to take it by faith. It has been revealed to us how that came about. Hebrews chapter 7. He didn't come from the priestly line of Aaron. He came from another priestly line, Melchizedek. Verse 14, Hebrews 7. He's dealing with this very problem. How can the Messiah be priest and king? Verse 14, Hebrews 7. It is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. A tribe with reference to which Moses spoke nothing concerning priests. Which is the writer's way of saying he came as king and not the priest. Moses didn't make an allowance for the priest to be from the line of Judah. So how is he going to be priest? And this is clearer still. If another priest arises according to the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become such not on the basis of the law of physical requirement, but according to the power of an indestructible life, For it is attested of him, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. You are Melchizedek, the king of righteousness. And as the king of righteousness, you can serve as priest to those who need an intercessor. King and priest in one Messiah, Jesus Christ. As king and priest, he sits on the throne where no one else has a right to be. But he does. His role is finished. His role is complete. So the writer of the Hebrews will say, chapter 8, Now the main point... In what has been said is this. We have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. We have a priest who is king. He came as a branch, as a sprout that seemed to be insignificant And nothing. And he will be on his throne. And he will provide the counsel of peace. There's some question about what is meant in verse 13. It reads more literally something like this. And the counsel of the peace will be between the two. Between the two what? Well, he's been talking about priests and kings. I think he means us to understand between the two offices of kingship and priesthood. So as he counsels as king and priest, he counsels and he brings peace. He is the prince 
of peace. And as priest, he dispenses peace to those who are opposed to God and he brings them into reconciliation with God on high. Judah has and we have a sovereignly wise king who intercedes as priest to the father in heaven. How glorious is this eternal king who is Israel's and our priest and intercessor. Now we know that everything that has been said applies not to Joshua but to the coming king priest. And we know that in part because of verse 14. Notice this. Now, or and, the crown will become a reminder in the temple of the Lord to Helam, Tobijah, Jediah, and Hen, the son of Zephaniah. And it is as if Joshua, as soon as that crown is put on his head and the declaration is made, it is as if he says, this isn't me. I am not worthy to wear this crown. And he takes the crown off and they set it in the temple so that every time the people would come to worship, they would see the crown and they would remember the promise. It's a reminder it's a memorial. It's a remembrance. Now what's ironic about this remembrance is that it looks forward, not backward. Now we have memorials all over the place. I mean, even in Granbury, we have a memorial. You can go down to the city park and you're going to find Memorial Park where there's a place that has been designated for first responders and military who are from Granbury who died in the service of their duty. We memorialize, we look back, and we remember what was and what was accomplished for us. But this is not that kind of memorial. This is a memorial that is looking forward. The kingly crown is set in the temple to remind the people, not just maybe one day God will remember you. The crown is put in the temple to remind them there is a certainty to the coming of the king. This is not happenstance. This is surety. This is certainty. He will come. He will combine kingly and priestly roles. And isn't it interesting that we have a similar kind of remembrance? Once a month in our tradition, we come and there's a table that is set right up here. And there are elements on that table. And those elements look backward. The bread and the cup at communion look backward to the death and resurrection of Christ, right? But what else do they do? They look forward to the next time Christ eats that meal. It will be with us in glory. And every time we take that meal, we're saying, it's coming. It's coming, Jesus. We trust you. And we believe. I want you to notice one more thing, one more aspect to this prophecy. Verse 15. 
This is this is so amazing. The Lord Almighty says, those who are far off will come and build the temple of the Lord. Those who are far off. Those who are not in Judah. Those who are not in Israel. Those who are in the rest of the world. Though not said explicitly here, this is a hint at the inclusion of the Gentiles into the promises of Israel. We saw it first in chapter 2. Many nations will join themselves to the Lord in that day and will become my people. They will come here, chapter 6, verse 15, from far off. And they will help to build the temple. Chapter 8, verse 22. So many peoples and mighty nations will come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to entreat the favor of the Lord. We find it as well in Haggai chapter 2. We find it in Ephesians chapter 2. This message that God is a missionary God who's not just concerned about the nation of Judah, but He's concerned about the nations and bringing in the nations. And brothers and sisters, who is that? That's us. The Gentiles who have been folded in to the promises of God. I want you to notice one last thing about verse 15, and that is a twofold encouragement and warning. The encouragement is then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. When you see this, then you'll know this is true. Now, God has spoken it, so we can trust it, we believe it, we don't need to see that day yet to know it's true, but that day will authenticate the message. That's the encouragement. This is true. God's word, God's promises are dependable. You can trust His revealed word. There's also a warning and an exhortation, and it will take place if you completely obey the Lord your God. That's an allusion to the Mosaic Covenant and the promise of blessings and cursings starting in chapter 28, verse 1 through chapter 30 of Deuteronomy. If you follow me and obey me, you will be blessed. And if you disobey me, you will be cursed. And it's a reminder to the people, the Messiah is coming, but you've got to obey. You've got to follow him. You've got to be part of his people. You've got to trust him. And depend on Him. That's the picture of God's kingly gift. That's the reality of God's kingly gift. Let me see and finish here this morning. With the encouragement of God's kingly gift. What encouragement can we find from this passage? Remember Zechariah and the prophecy and this passage are given to encourage the returnees to Judah to rebuild the temple. To remind them that the nations will not oppress them ultimately. That God has provided for them. They are safe and they are secure. They can build the temple. God will provide for them. And as we read Zechariah, we also should be encouraged and hopeful. What kind of encouragement can we find? Number one, whatever opposition and suffering we experience on earth will be replaced by peace and joy in eternity. Some of us are tempted to be anxious about tomorrow. 
for some of us, what we are worried about will happen. I'm not going to stand up here and say, you know what you're worried about tomorrow? Not going to happen. Because for some of you, it will. And some of us, me, we will have cancer. The car will be irreparable. We will get laid off. The guy won't call for a date. We will get cut from the baseball team. Our father won't return our phone call. That thing that I'm imagining, that thing that I'm thinking about, that thing that I am dreading may be become, may become my reality. For the believer in Jesus Christ, for the believer in the branch, the Messiah, all those things are surpassed by the peace that comes through the Messiah, the branch. Brothers and sisters, hear this. We will have trouble on this earth. But hear this as well. We won't have trouble in heaven. We do well to remember both those realities. And we do well to stop assuming that the earth and this time will provide us the peace that we want. It won't. There is suffering on this earth, but it is always limited. And there is only joy in heaven. And it is unlimited. And we need to remember that. Second encouragement, set your mind, your heart on things above and in the future. When I first wrote this, I wrote, think more about the Messiah and less about the mess. Take whichever one you want. Set your mind on things above. That's a New Testament principle. We get that from Colossians chapter 3. But it's exactly what is intended by this prophecy. This whole picture is culminated in the crown that's put in the temple. That's a reminder. And why the reminder? So that as the Jews are going to worship in the temple, that's what they're looking at. That's what they're seeing. That's what they're thinking about. They see the crown and they think Messiah. Set your mind on the Messiah. Be fixated with Christ and all that he is. This prophecy and all prophecy is given to tell us that he what is coming and to make us confident in the God who has made the promise. He cannot lie. Whatever is he has said will come about. And if it hasn't happened yet, it simply means he's giving more time for more people to repent before he comes back. And that means instead of despairing, we should be more interested in evangelizing the world. I know the temptation to be discouraged about our world. I get up in the morning too and see all the news flashes on my phone. And the only way out of that discouragement is by contentment in and meditation on the Messiah, the branch. Third encouragement. God has promised many blessings to Israel and to us. We can rest in their certainty, but he still expects and demands 
obedience. There's a biblical principle that says before you follow Jesus Christ, count the cost. Are you willing to give up what it takes to follow Jesus Christ as the king? I think sometimes we talk way too much about the cost of following Jesus and not enough about the blessing of following Jesus. We also need to count the privilege of following Jesus, the joy of following Jesus, the riches of following Jesus. Jesus himself talks about this. Matthew 13, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and hid again and from joy over it, he goes and he sells all that he has and buys the field. Why? Because the field is worth way more than anything else he owns. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. And upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and he bought it. He gave up everything for one pearl. Why? Because the one pearl is magnificently more valuable than anything else. That's what it is to follow Jesus Christ. And we need to count the honor of following him. My friend, if you're here this morning and you are not a follower of Jesus Christ, might I just encourage you, plead with you, ask you, beg you to trust him. He's an immeasurable blessing who gives far more than anything else in this world ever can give you. Trade it all so that you can follow him. He will liberate you from your sin and he will grant you the riches of glory. But you've got to trust him that he died on the cross for your sin. He paid a penalty you can't pay to liberate you from what you can never free yourself on your own. It's only him. And if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, would you also consider the blessing of continuing in obedience to him? It's not just that I obey today. It's that's my goal every day is to obey and follow him. Obedience will always satisfy you here. It will always be a delight and it will satisfy you eternally when you see him seated on his eternal throne. Remember that letter that Richard Helms sent his son Dennis from Germany? The price for ridding society of bad is always high. He was absolutely right. It is. Always will be. Astoundingly high. But Christ has paid the final price of ridding the world of all evil. He's paid the price. And he will reign on his throne. That's the promise and encouragement for Israel. And that's the promise and encouragement for you and for me. Our Father, we thank you for the rich treasures of this Messiah, our Savior, Jesus Christ. We thank you, Father, for the one who is the branch, who will come as the Messiah, has come the first time in simplicity and humility, and is going to come again. And when he comes again, he will come in all of the fullness. The branch will have reached to the full extent that it will travel. And he will be seated on his throne. Yea, he is already there as priest and king. 
and we will worship Him. Oh, Father, thank You for the encouragement, the hope, and the life that is to be found in these promises. And thank You that they are not promises that might be true, but because they come from the Lord of hosts, because they come from Almighty God, they are certain, sure, trustworthy, and good. And we pray these things in Christ's name with such great gratitude. Amen.